Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of our podcast mini-series Getting to Better Together, which is sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast and is supported by Noosa Radio, FM 101.3 and I'm your host Richard Borden. Before proceeding further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Whenever I say these words, I reflect on what it is that we've seemingly lost in our insatiable quest for what we regard as progress. In our ever-continuing thrust to be an industrialised modern state, our focus has been on exploitation of the land rather than on custodianship of it. We've ruptured our in- innate intimate relationships with the rest of nature and, I suggest, all too often with each other. Neighbour with neighbour, local community with local community, political faction with political faction, and nation with nation. And if we can't seem to get on with and respect each other, how can we expect to get on with and respect the environment about us? Perhaps there are simply too many of us, too many to be friends with each other, too remote from others to be concerned with their well-being, too focused on self rather than on community, or beyond on nature itself. Maybe there are just too many of us. One day, within the next few months, there will be 8 billion of us humans on this planet, clustered across nearly 200 different nations of vastly different scales, hugely different geographies, and immensely different cultural and economic conditions. But we'll all be hustling and bustling away to survive in a world that's beset by uncertainties and complex social, economic, cultural, and ecological challenges. So who cares? Who does care? Who could help us in these hours of our need? Who, on a truly global scale, are committed to getting to better together? Luckily for us, and thanks to the wisdom and foresight of some of our elders, who established first the League of Nations after World War I and the United Nations after World War II, we do have institutions in place that are proving to be of immeasurable value in helping us overcome some of our limitations. And these institutions are populated by some of the most caring people on earth, tens of thousands of them. My guest today, Mike Sackett, was one of these dedicated carers for more than two decades, working in increasingly senior positions within the United Nations, and particularly within the World Food Programme, and in the latter part of his career in humanitarian initiatives, all mostly within Africa and Asia. Welcome, Michael. Thanks very much, Richard. When I say that the UN is filled with caring people, is that true? Probably not. Um, there's a whole spectrum, as as you'd expect. I, I've certainly uh, met and worked with some remarkably caring and capable human beings, uh, but I would be wrong to pretend the 100% of that population uh, was of that ilk. What draws people to want to work with the United Nations? I think it's it's a variety of things. I mean, quite clearly, uh, it's people who are happy to work outside their comfort zone, uh, to work in in uh, differing environments. In fact, to even uh, be stimulated and to thrive in in uh, various backgrounds and working with with a variety of people. I think they are um, some of the hallmarks of of successful UN uh, uh, employees. Over your long decades of of working in in various countries of the world and various projects, have you come to have a clear understanding of 
if I asked you what do you mean by development, could you answer that in a in a concise term? Well, a lot of things come under the heading of development, but I I think you can almost boil it down to good governance, good education, and good health. Okay. Um, to keep, at a very simple level, that's what I'd say. Yeah. So if I said uh, as our theme of this particular podcast series is is getting to better, you would have not much difficulty in understanding where the better lay. Certainly the direction of betterness, I think, is quite straightforward. And especially when, when you see in, in so many different situations uh, either abject poverty or uh, discrimination against women, uh, lack of education, children dying needless, needlessly, not vaccinated and so on. Yes, it's very simple, I think, to see uh, the path to, to betterment. In, uh, in shifting to, well, no, in shifting, let me, let me rephrase that, in terms of taking up within the, the World Food Programme, that clearly does have a very clear idea of what, what betterment is about. It does. And it, it's interesting, World Food Programme has been in existence for 60 years now. It started as a, uh, an organisation dealing with surplus food surpluses, and it used it almost exclusively on development projects. However, World Food Programme today has almost totally switched to an emphasis on uh, emergency life-saving uh, activities. And sadly, very often, this is in the aftermath of, uh, of conflict. Even today, a country like Ukraine is probably the most recent recipient of uh, WFP assistance. And what does assistance mean in that context? Basically, food to keep people alive. Okay. Uh, and it's, it is a most basic ration of food. It's calories, usually in the form of cereals. Um, it's protein in the form of uh, legumes, certainly not uh, meat or fish. Uh, and it's vegetable oil, which is a, a dense form of calories and adds to the palatability of uh, uh, the food people eat. So there's a sort of double whammy in, in the Ukraine, isn't there, where, where people themselves are going to go hungry in a grain bowl. It, exactly, yes. I mean, it's one of the, the major food surplus uh, countries of the world, wheat being the main crop. Um, a lot of that wheat ends up in the Middle East. Uh, I'm particularly worried about a country like Egypt with 100 million people, a wheat-eating country. Um, their primary supplies of wheat came from the Black Sea across the Mediterranean into Egypt. And those food flows will not continue uh, to anything like the same degree this year. So what will happen? That's a very good question. I, I think the, I mean, clearly there are other sources of supply, but prices will be a lot higher. And inevitably, it'll be the people at the, uh, the bottom of the economic heap who are most affected. So there will be a, a great deal of additional uh, suffering in Middle Eastern and other countries. I mean, it always sounds horrible to talk about it, but does this mean actually an advantage to Australian farmers? Uh, yes, it's certainly... Australia's in the very happy position of uh, going through a, a third very good year climatically, and this will coincide with a period of, of um, 
very high prices. So for uh, Australian farmers, they certainly are winners. The World Food Programme itself is not an agency, is it? It's one of the so-called funds and programs of the UN. And I think um, the true significance of this is that it uh, it gets its resources, it gets its funds uh, through voluntary contributions, primarily from governments. Mm -hmm. Small amount comes from the private sector, but they are government contributions Australia is it ranks at about number 13, largest donor. Um, Australia gives money. World Food Programme then uses that money uh, to buy the cheapest forms of wholesome food that it requires. But the key thing is, unlike the political and technical arms of the UN, uh, these resources are provided by Australia on a a voluntary basis, not um, as an assessed contribution. There are a number, of course, of of agencies, aren't there? Yes, something like 40, 42. Wow. And they have clear mandates or do they overlap with each other? There is some overlap, but I mean, the... Uh, I think the the classic one that helps one sort of understand the role of a a multilateral agency is the International Civil Aviation Organization, who who play a regulatory role with um, flying around the world. There's UNICEF, the Children's Fund. Uh, There's World Health Organization that, of course, has been very much in the headlines with the recent uh, COVID pandemic. So while there are overlaps between UN agencies, there is a uh, each has its own clear area to um, uh, to work within. And is there any sense of coordination of all of this? I mean, there's a, there's a general council. Yes. So at the the central level, uh, there is the UN General Assembly, uh, which has 193 member states. And then the uh, there is the Security Council, which is, if you like, is the the central governing body. Uh, it comprises fifteen nations, five of which permanent members of the Security Council, and the other ten uh, have revolving three-year terms. Mm-hmm. And and Australia was um, a member of the Security Council up until about twenty seventeen, I think it was. Okay. Let's talk about um, some of your own personal experiences. Why did you want to join it in the first place, it being the UN? Yes, it's, that's interesting. The um, I'd always, uh, having qualified in agriculture, wanted to work in an overseas environment. And I started off as a, a volunteer in Vanuatu. And then I worked for the Australian government in uh, what was uh, pre-independent Papua New Guinea, I stayed on for a further three years after independence. And then I was I was looking to continue in this field. And it, it seemed to me that uh, uh, the UN system offered the uh, probably the greatest range of, of activities. None of this was pre-planned. One job led to another. But, but looking back with hindsight, uh, I just think I was incredibly fortunate to... Uh, to have such a stimulating and most of the time it was fun. Sometimes it was not fun, 
But um, I always say it was great uh, having fun and being paid for it. <laughs> You've been in some uh, extraordinarily complex situations. When I think about what, uh, for instance, you were telling me earlier about the situation in Afghanistan, um, when you were there and all of a sudden the world broke loose. Well, the, when I arrived there um, as the, the representative of the World Food Programme uh, in 1999, it was Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. And uh, we, we certainly found a, a, um, a means, a modality of, of working there. The, the Taliban were smart enough to realise that they needed World Food Programme assistance um, they didn't like some of the things we insisted on. We had female employees, etc. But we certainly found a way of, well, meeting the needs of very desperate, hungry people and uh, working within the parameters or the constraints imposed by the then Taliban regime. Then, of course, 9-11 came on and uh, the Taliban were, uh, well, as it turns out, temporarily displaced, but there was a uh, certainly a much more open, liberal um, era of 20 years in Afghanistan. And, and so I was working there at the beginning of that. And, and it's interesting, people say, well, of the countries you've worked in, which was your favourite? And I always say Afghanistan. Oh, really? Mm. And, and I, for three reasons. The, first of all, the extraordinary people, extraordinary beauty to the country with the, the high mountains of the Hindu Kush, um, very arid, very sophisticated and very centuries whole, old uh, irrigation systems, so dramatically green. Um, and then the sheer history. A again, I have a, a recollection shortly after arriving in Kandahar of um, a, a wizened Afghan pointing to the uh, the east and saying, um, do you know Alexander the Great walked through that gap in the mountains in 329 BC? Yeah, wow. um, quite extraordinary. When you change from one country to another, and in, in your case also from one continent to another, what do you tell yourself when you enter into a new community, a new society, in terms of how am I going to deal with a community, with a society, with a culture, that is really significantly different, not necessarily, I mean, not be from from your own culture, but also from the one you've just been in. So you have to do this sort of cultural shift. It Very much so. I guess it's something you become sort of habituated to. It And it's part of the, the stimulus and the positivity about the whole thing. You know, you have some things are the same. The, the working tenets of, of working for the World Food Programme were the same whether you were in Afghanistan or Zimbabwe, but the context is dramatically different. The, 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 um, one of the key things one does in getting to a new country, you're working in partnership with the host government, mm -hmm. and each government is, is unique, and, and so it's really latching on to those um, differences, um, understanding the key things, and you simply have just an enormous learning curve in the first days, weeks, months. And it it's at least a year before you can feel any degree of comfort 
working in a new uh, environment, I found. There must be those that fall by the wayside. Um, actually, r remarkably few. Um, I can recall one colleague who um, joined us uh, on a FAO project. Um, this was in Tanzania, where the economy was in extremely bad shape, almost no consumer goods in shops and so on. And this guy uh, arrived on a Tuesday or whatever it was, and was on the plane back home by the Friday. Wow. He'd had enough. But he was absolutely almost the exception in, in many years of, uh, of this. Someone walks up to you and says, tell me in one sentence what the UN does. Ah, impossible. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, what it tries to do? Or? Yeah. The, I mean, the, uh, the most basic premise of the UN is, is keeping the peace. And and you only have to reflect on what's going on in Ukraine today to to realise how how badly it's failing. Let me just say a little bit. I, I mean, I, when I returned to Australia after working twenty seven years in the UN, I I was very struck by two things. One was how little the average Australian knows about the UN, and secondly, what little they did know was extremely negative. Yeah. And I always found that was was pretty unfair. Yes, the the um, UN has weaknesses. Um, is is uh, it's far from a universal force for good, but it has done good things. It has, for example, eradicated polio. Yeah. The if if we look at what it's managing, or rather not managing, to do in terms of keeping peace in a country like Ukraine, you you only have to look at the way it's structured. Post-Second World War, when it was set up, the five uh, members of, permanent members of the Security Council, so that's Britain, France, uh, US, uh, China, and Russia, were given the power of veto. And that may have been sensible at the time, but I can't help thinking that um, it it really negates any possibility of, for example, having a satisfactory outcome to the, the current situation in Ukraine. Mm. So there, there will have to be a process of really significant UN reform, although how that can actually come about without the whole apparatus unwinding, um, sadly, I do not know. Mm. We've talked a fair bit in, in this series about the sustainability development goals. How, uh, how have they diffused through the, the various different agencies? Is it still just one specific group working with it? Or is it now a sort of general philosophy? That's really what we should... Yeah, no, I think you'd find each agency would relate to one or several of the, uh, uh, the development goals. Right. And and uh, yes, I think that does move in a in a generally helpful uh, direction. It's just really impossible to conceive if you have no idea of how it all operates, of of this massive bureaucracy, which is really what it is, isn't it? I mean, it has people working on the ground. I mean, I was privileged enough to work with. Uh, with FAO, which is the Food and Agricultural Organization within the United Nations, way back in the 70s. Um, and it was an absolute eye-opener for me 
uh, as a, a young academic to be invited to join uh, for a brief while anyway for, for two years with the United Nations project and trying to grasp the enormity of all of that and how on earth it did do good and how that was then conveyed back to people who mattered in terms of making decisions about let's support what's good. Well, I, th I think what's uh, important is to understand a little bit about how these organisations are governed. And, and let me refer to World Food Programme. So it has a, a governing body of 36 of the member states of the UN uh, are on the, the governing body of World Food Programme. And that is um, split between 12 so-called developed uh, countries uh, and 24 uh, less developed or essentially recipient countries. And there is then a balancing between the different regional parts of the world. So, so many South Americans, so many Asian countries, etc. And that governing body uh, very much sets the sort of strategic tone and direction of WFP. And I'm sure it's similar with um, World Health Organization, uh, UNESCO, etc. That's just been delightful. Time has flown. Thank you so much, Mike. It's been a really, really interesting conversation. Let me end with an anecdote, uh, which sort of sums up the issue of, of general ignorance about what the UN does. Um, some of my work when I was in, in Uruguay involved moving sheep from the north of the country to the south. And we, i.e. the United Nations, had said that when you're moving animals from one part of the country to another, you need to have a certificate to move the animals, whatever. And we had in, brought that into bear. And one night I was coming home late with one of my colleagues and there was a guy standing in the middle of the road with a sword. He, st he stopped our, our truck and said, where are you going? And we had these four sheep in the back. And we said, we were going back to the laboratory. And he said, where's your license for carrying the sheep? I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, we've, uh, I don't know where it was. Anyway, we searched in the car and we couldn't find it. This is a United Nations car, the white car with a big blue blazons on either side. And he said uh, to me, where are you from? And I said, from the United Nations. And he said, United Nations of where? And I thought, this could be trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for coming. My pleasure. It's just terrific. Thank you, Richard. <laughs>